Support for Georgia College Connections comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald, and today we continue our collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversations to our radio audience. The Times Talk is a weekly current events and ideas symposium that takes place at noon Wednesdays in the Ina Dillard Russell Library on the campus of Georgia College in downtown Milledgeville. These events are free and open to the public, so if this discussion sparks your interest, please consider joining the conversation at noon, Wednesdays, in the Georgia College Library. Our topic of conversation for this time's talk is freedom of expression in higher education in American society. My guest today is Pate McMichael of the Georgia College Mass Communications Department. Pate, welcome back to Georgia College Connections. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure to have you back. We're talking about freedom of expression. This is one that I think from the articles you're presenting is mostly centered around these debates on the college campus. You know, what's appropriate in this environment, what's inappropriate, and how do institutions try to, I guess, met out the good and the bad and the possibilities. In the state of current politics, in which people are finally free to say things that they've always been thinking, but society has prevented them from sharing, I think we're going to have to provide a little bit of a background uh, for our topic today. So can we start off by talking about the challenges to free expression on the college campus? There's a lot of variables at play here. Maybe the easiest way for people to understand this conversation is to start with money. States across the nation are cutting back their funding for universities, which means universities are having to make up more of that funding through tuition through fees. They're not as financially solid as they used to be. So universities have become extremely sensitive to controversy. They've become extremely sensitive to protest and, of course, any kind of conflict that might arise on a college campus, because that can obviously hurt your reputation. It can create a lot of negative publicity that might financially hit you in the pocketbook. And so that's similar to how a big corporation thinks or a company has to report earnings every three months. If you think about that as being one of, of the factors, it, it might help you then understand that, uh, like you probably noticed this summer, there's a tremendous amount of free speech being exercised in this country. We're in the middle of a very historic election. We have a protest movement sweeping the nation called Black Lives Matter. And we also have some generational considerations Millennial generation students are now the ones going to college, and we're trying to meet the challenge of educating this particular generation in a way that appeals to them and makes them feel comfortable. And so I think when you put all of that together, and I'm leaving out a few, you begin to see that there's a challenge. How far should we go as university administrators to restrict speech on campus and make everyone feel welcome. In doing so, are we harming the very institution that, that we're trying to protect? Because universities, of course, thrive on the idea of free and open debate, 
right, which is so vital to a democratic institution. It's why we have Amendment 1, which generally guarantees your freedom of speech. So that's the challenge is how do these universities meet all those different tasks and also remain very open, vibrant places where speech is tolerated, even radical, unpopular, offensive speech. In that last statement, I think you talked about what the expectation is many times from the outside. But in the article that you present, it talks about an almost a division on these college campuses, not between students and different groups of students, but actually between faculty and staff and then students. There's a much more, uh, there's a much greater tolerance for the speech from the student class of people on these campuses, but we're starting to see a, a more dramatic curtail of the faculty and staff speech. I was wondering if you might give some examples that will illustrate you know, the issue at hand. Definitely. One of the articles that we'll be presenting at the Times Talk is from the New York Times involving a faculty member who was fired because she in illustrating a point, used the N-word. The students were very indignant about her usage of that word, even though she did not necessarily mean it in a, uh, you know, it was not from her point of view. She was illustrating a point. The students went to the university, protested, and this uh, particular faculty member found herself without a job. At the University of Missouri, there was another faculty member who was encouraging a group of Black Lives Matter protesters to, quote unquote, show some muscle when a uh, student journalist was filming the group and trying to basically do his duty to the First Amendment and just record in a public area where he had every right to be and, and to have a camera. That faculty member was also fired because it appeared as if she was in some ways encouraging a violent attack some people thought that might have been an overreach, that maybe she was just in the heat of the moment, that she had made poor decision, which she has now admitted to making. And so there's been some pretty severe punishment for faculty members who have dared to get involved in conversations that are controversial in nature, in protests that are obviously emotionally stimulating. Okay, And so I think that challenge has some faculty members scared, like how do I approach certain subjects in my classroom? But I also want to mention another variable that I think has faculty scared, and that is the prospect of putting guns in classrooms. In the University of Texas, there is a huge student protest going on because uh, the state has passed a law allowing students to carry concealed weapons in classrooms, and that's led to a very controversial protest on their campus Faculty members in particular have even filed lawsuits against uh, the state of Texas because they feel like this is a threat to academic freedom, that they as faculty members and staff members may not talk about certain subjects for fear that a person carrying a concealed weapon might become a little too angered by the conversation and uh, potentially commit a violent act. We have unfortunately, a, a rich history, a dark history of school shootings. And in fact, the bill in Texas corresponds to the 50th anniversary of a terrible shooting where a man went into a tower on the campus of UT and killed uh, what I believe was 30 different individuals who were on that campus. He was also shot and killed himself. And so 
Second Amendment right people view that as uh, a warning, that had more people had guns, they might have been able to limit the loss of life. The same gun debate we've heard before. So you can see that there's an array of things kind of pushing this conversation about what are the rights of faculty members and students on a campus and how do guns tie into that and how does controversial speech tie into that and your rights to protest. Well, we're going to take a short break right now. But if you're just joining us, you're listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. This program is a part of our partnership with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversation to our radio audience. We're talking with Pate McMichael today. He's a faculty member of the Mass Communications Department at Georgia College, and we're talking about freedom of expression in higher education in American society. So stay tuned for more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. We're having another Times Talk discussion on Georgia College Connections. This, of course, is our partnership with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their weekly current events and ideas symposium to our radio audience. If you enjoy our conversation, of course, the Times Talk is a free and public event that takes place every Wednesday in the Georgia College Library, and those start at noon. I'm talking today with Pate McMichael, and the topic of our conversation is freedom of expression in higher education in America's society, and how that's changing right now. And so in that last segment, we were talking about some of these challenges and how they're taking place or how they're playing out on college campuses. I wanted to back up a second and just talk about academic freedom and how it's traditionally been thought of on college campuses. 
Absolutely. Well, you know, I think academic freedom is a concept that is probably as old as our university system. Thomas Jefferson constructing the University of Virginia, making it a, a public institution, University of Georgia being created in 1789. So as old as these institutions are, they are almost as old as the First Amendment itself. And so one of the concepts and one of the tenets of academia is that the professor should enjoy a certain amount of autonomy in the classroom to address very controversial subjects, simply because if the professor does not have that freedom, if the administrators can fire professors for their beliefs, what their research is uh, suggesting, then really and truly you're in a mentality where freedom of expression doesn't exist. So to be a public school, to be a public institution, academic freedom in many people's eyes, including mine, is one of the key foundational things you have to have and enforce. So it's just about making sure that universities are very vibrant places where controversial ideas can be expressed without the fear of uh, punishment. Not necessarily just controversial ideas, but but radical ideas in the sense that you know, ideas that challenge the common way of thinking, the traditional way of thinking, I think that is just as uh, important in the humanities as, as well as it is in the sciences. I mean, because let us not forget there was a time when the conventional wisdom is that the, the earth is flat. And, uh, you know, I think that there are probably people who took on some very serious punishments for challenging that. But, you know, that was a radical idea now. And now it's accepted truth. But one thing I wanted to go back to and what you're saying is this idea of academic freedom wasn't necessarily confined to the classroom. It also was able to be exercised outside in your public persona as a a faculty member. People are intimidated now that they feel like they got to be careful when they go on social media, that that they want to not leave too big a trace of their political views and, and their positions. And it's really scary if you go back to Vietnam and you think about just how passionately so many academics protested that war and how that, of course, led to situations like Kent State, where student protest and academic protest, you know, ran afoul of of the government and, and led to bloodshed. So I think professors, right, are very uncomfortable with surrendering any kind of autonomy, not just in the classroom, but yes, in their own lives, in their own research, their own public persona. Academics feel as if they should be able to be free to say whatever they like, wherever they like, because they've been hired to inspire and to teach, and they're not responsible necessarily for the partisan views of another group. They are individuals, and they're expressing their individual opinions. And I think that that freedom has also put them within the sights of some people who would want to challenge that, because although I think it has a very important role within you know these institutions of higher education but there's a, a perception that's out there that it makes them untouchable in a way as well and that could put them at the ire of you know not only their students the parents of students but society in general uh, especially when they're espousing ideas that uh, come into conflict with any number of culture and society absolutely i mean there are nonprofit groups that are out there documenting controversial statements made by professors and then trying to use the power of the media to apply pressure to universities to get rid of those professors. So there is an entire industry of folks who are questioning the merits of academic freedom and trying to document what they view as the excesses of it. 
that is a institution under threat, primarily because, as I mentioned earlier, financially, universities are much less secure. And with that comes, I think, a little more sensitivity to negative media publicity. And so when your faculty members are the ones creating that publicity because of the positions they're taking, you know, you're going to have conflict and you're going to have pressure mount. And the question is, should universities in some way try to codify and write down exactly what the rights of the faculty members are when it comes to academic freedom? Not doing that obviously opens the door in many ways to censorship or worse, retaliation. Depending on where you stand on the issue, I don't think there's any doubt that this is a very relevant subject on every campus. And I would say even not codifying it, leaving it ambiguous also has another chilling effect in that you don't know where the boundaries lie. But uh, we've reached the time for, for this segment, and so we will take another short break. Uh, but if you're just joining us, we're talking with Pate McMichael about Freedom of Expression in Higher Education in American Society. This is a part of our collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversations to our radio audiences. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald, and we're continuing today with our collaboration to bring the Times Talk, a weekly current events and ideas symposium, to our radio audience. This, of course, is a partnership with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College. Today we're talking about freedom of expression in higher education in American society and changing perceptions of this in modern America. My guest is Pate McMichael. Now, you gave us a great transition on the way out that last time in talking about 
the pressure to codify or not this kind of concept of freedom of expression on the college campus. And so uh, my next question, of course, is can you provide some examples of the way that this has been codified at American universities, the way that these policies have been written, and maybe a little bit about the reaction to the way that that has been done? Definitely. It's a pretty topical conversation. Um, Last Friday, the University of Chicago kind of shocked a lot of academic communities by releasing one of these and giving it to the freshmen who were on campus. And it's a very libertarian type of interpretation of what a campus and academic freedom should be because the university basically said, you know, this will be a place where there will not be safe spaces, there will not be trigger warnings in class. Students should come here and expect to hear radical, controversial, upsetting opinions that are not their own, and they should retaliate by expressing their own opinions. So it was, in that way, a market of ideas kind of uh, freedom of expression guarantee. Uh, I think some universities are a little bit leery of going that route simply because they feel a need to make people feel welcome. They are trying to recruit, in some cases, uh, minority students because their numbers are very low, and they're worried that many of these students are getting in these environments where they feel intimidated and if they're walking right into class and encountering, you know, a very heated conversation about slavery or a heated conversation about gender rights or a heated conversation about immigration policy, they might suddenly freeze up and feel very intimidated. They might also, if they've been the victims of any kind of violence, have some kind of physical or uh, mental breakdown. And so many universities are very worried that these students that fit some of the parameters that they're trying to reach, right, and grow their their diversity efforts, that some of those students are potentially going to be offended. And, And I think we've seen that in some campuses where they've had speakers who were suddenly canceled because of racist or unpopular comments those people had made in the media or in public. You know, one institution, Condoleezza Rice, was basically canceled from giving a graduation speech. And so it's a very difficult thing to imagine, you know, as a university. How do you how do you make everybody feel comfortable? How do you welcome all voices on campus without trampling on people's First Amendment rights? Chicago's mentality was some people are going to be uncomfortable and there's going to be some serious growing up on campus. So I'm not certain what other universities do. I know at Georgia College, we have the three R's, respect, responsibility, and reason, not in that order. But, you know, if you go with reason first, obviously we want our students to be very intellectual. We want them to reason well, make good logical assumptions. But you can see how what you might call reasonable and what I might call reasonable are two different things. And so when someone appears to be unreasonable and they're invited to speak on campus, does that break Georgia College's freedom of expression policy, right? That's kind of the issue. Should we get something on paper that's a little more clear? But definitely the expectation is for students to meet those three R's, for them to respect one another. But as you know, Uh, There's nothing in the law that makes you respect anybody in this country, right? You are free to be a lot of things, right? So 
I think that's one of the, the challenges that universities will continue to face. If they demand respect in every situation, they will quickly find themselves on the wrong side of the First Amendment because there is really nothing in the law that requires a fellow student to respect another one. And we may go off on a tear here, but this is, um, I think, a, a part of the conversation that's important to you and I as you know, we are practicing journalists. To speak for myself, I've always felt that the way to handle hate speech, other unreasonable speech, is with more speech. That you do not infringe upon someone's right to express their you know, firmly held beliefs or you know, just their line of reasoning, but you try to counteract that with making the more reasonable argument by putting out more speech out there. Yes, I, I think that's not just a journalistic value. That That is really what the law says, that the Supreme Court has been very clear over the years. In 1969, they handed down a decision called Brandenburg versus Ohio, where they basically freed a Klansman who had been threatening violence in his community. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, but there was actually no plan in place. He was just running off at the mouth. This is basically taking away his First Amendment rights and criminalizing his unpopular speech. And ever since 1969, since that case, there has been just decision after decision upholding the rights of people to express wildly unpopular beliefs. They've also done things like struck down ordinances that were attempting to force tolerance on individuals. Uh, One case came out of the city of St. Paul, Minnesota, where They had an ordinance that was requiring everyone to show respect and tolerance for each other. And the Supreme Court said, no, that law is unconstitutional. You can't make those demands on a a citizen of this country. And so what the the court does punish is uh, libel and uh, terroristic speech. You know, not everything is freedom of speech, and there are some severe limits. But what they're saying is, as long as this person's not threatening another individual or libeling that individual— you really, as an institution, don't have any right to censor that person. And I think you're right as well, from an argument base, from a a rhetoric point of view, much more effective to let the unpopular views be spoken so that people can hear them and make up their own minds. If your viewpoint is so valid, then you should be able, right, to convince other people that you're the more reasonable voice. And I think that's been proven true time and time again. That's why Westboro Baptist Church was allowed and has continued to allow to, to do awful things like protest gay people's funerals, protest the funerals of soldiers. That's how far the First Amendment protects unpopular speech in this country. That's not me saying it. That's the Supreme Court of the United States. And, of course, those are binding decisions over everyone, including universities. Well, and the interesting thing about that, though, is— Per our conversation today, the Supreme Court will go back and I'm not sure if overrule is the appropriate word, but these things are malleable. Despite whatever our reading of the Constitution is, we are in a living society and what ideas and beliefs governed us at the outset may not be germane to the way our society operates now. But unfortunately, on that note, we've got to take the time for another break. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Pate McMichael about freedom of expression in higher education. 
This is, of course, a part of our collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversations to our radio audience. If you're enjoying our conversation today, please join these discussions each Wednesday at noon in the Georgia College Library. They're free, they're open to the public, and they're a whole lot of fun, too. Uh, so please come out and consider joining us for that. But in the meantime, please stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. We're talking about freedom of expression in higher education and the changing concepts of this in American society. In the studio with me today is Pate McMichael of the Georgia College Mass Communications Department. Now, in that last segment, we were talking about the ways in which universities and other institutions of higher education have tried to create policies addressing I guess the context for freedom of expression, the boundary lines, um, and attempts to clarify this. And I heard you use a good vocabulary word for this debate, and I, I want to stand in for the audience right now because I know myself, when I first became aware of this debate within academia, it, it's really as a result of hearing this word and having to go out and, and figure out what exactly it meant. And that's trigger warnings. Can you talk about uh, what a trigger warning is and how it's being applied today? Sure. So a trigger warning would just be a way for you to prepare students for an uncomfortable conversation or a conversation that you think might really upset them or offend them. I think a good practical example might help. I teach a class called Media Law, and one of the topics I have to teach is obscenity law, which in the modern world is basically synonymous with pornography. Because for a long time in this country, conversations about birth control and sex were also 
tied in with conversations about pornography and morality. And, and in the United States, that was a justification for a long time to, to not allow birth control and to criminalize conversations of sex. So imagine suddenly having to discuss things like pornography with students who may be very morally opposed to it and who may not understand that one reason they need to learn about the law of obscenity and what that definition would mean is because it shows them the progression historically of how this prudish country has become a country that is saturated in pornographic content, uh, as anyone who's been on the internet has probably seen. Well, and also, I just do want to say, it has been able to retain uh, kind of that prudish uh, mind frame ar- around these things. It's it's one of the you know huge, I guess, you know conflicts uh, of our society is that we can be both here. Absolutely. And so another idea would be curse words, right? If, if, if you're doing a lecture on a case that I teach called Cohen versus California, where a man walked into a court wearing a jacket that read F the draft, you know, do I need to provide those students with a trigger warning before I use that phrase or explain what happened in this case? It, in some ways, it makes the professor re- feel responsible for the material, right? And a lot of professors, including myself, are very resistant to the idea of trigger warnings because this is just part of opening your eyes and becoming an adult and learning about the history of your country and the world. And yes, there may be times where that is very shocking to a student and they don't know how to respond. I've certainly received feedback from students who were offended by conversations I had to have in my law class about certain topics. At the end of the day, though, Many people in academia would view that as a positive step forward for that individual, that they've had to hear something that they maybe didn't want to hear, and they've had to try to evaluate it and to learn from it and understand it. The same is true with conversations about government policy and war politics. Where would we stop having to provide trigger warnings in a liberal arts type of environment? where nearly every conversation is about how we should govern ourselves, how we should make our society better. That's always going to lead to tension and outrage. But in my moral judgment, that's a positive thing, right, to get people debating, disagreeing. And so in encouraging trigger warnings, some faculty members view that as basically stifling debate, feeling guilty about bringing up what is a necessary part of the curriculum. Well, and I also think that when we think about the right to freedom of expression that America is supposed to be celebrated, what would you not trigger warning? And could that actually slow down the curriculum to a crawl to be able to forsage all of the offenses that any of our classes you know, could be casting upon the students? But I also wondered if you might talk about some of the consequences to materials that need to be trigger warning. And this may be something that is apocryphal or it may not be true, but I've, I've heard that in some places, if you need to actually provide a trigger warning for the material you're providing, there's also an expectation that you would excuse any kind of absences or a uh, failure to prepare for that class because that person is offended by the information and therefore should not have to um, have... I guess they're grade based upon things that offend them and make them uncomfortable. 
Yeah, I think that would make a professor's job nearly impossible because uh, in a lot of ways you would be creating what in this case would be a legitimate excuse, right, if it's legitimized by the university for them to not learn that material or even have to put it in their mind, right? So it, it comes back to that idea of academic freedom. Who gets to determine what a student has to learn or doesn't have to learn? Is it the professor, the person who is supposed to be the expert on the material being taught in class, or should it be an administrator or someone who is trying to protect students from harm? And so you can think of cases, and I'm willing to accept the idea that, yes, there are going to be times where we actually could harm a student by not having a trigger warning. We may have a student who has been molested, and we may be having a conversation in a class about that topic. And if the student is really unaware that that's where the curriculum's going at that particular moment, I could see how that could create harm. What I'm struggling to find is what the solution to that would be. And is this a zero-sum game? Should we try to cause absolutely no harm to students by instituting so many trigger warnings? Or should we have to accept the fact that there are going to be times where there might be a, a limited amount of harm that comes from the idea of a vigorous, open, marketplace of ideas type of university policy. I think that's what everybody struggles with, because there's always a great example to give a trigger warning. There's always a great example to create a safe space, which is another term that we use. And, and safe spaces are not always used in equal ways. Like one type of safe space would be just a place where LGBT people could come and have conversations with faculty members who, who want them to know that they are there to be mentors and to, to have conversations with students. Nobody wants to do away with that type of safe space. But making the classroom a safe space, what does that even mean? There are some folks who would say that would mean allowing students to carry weapons into class. That would not be my definition of it. And so we could really define these, these terms, trigger warning and safe space, in very broad ways if we chose to. And I'm not sure at the end of the day we'd be doing any less harm to the students. We'd probably just be creating an environment where we've in some ways corrupted the academic experience and made it less rigorous than maybe it currently is or should be. We're going to take another short break right now. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we're talking about the freedom of expression in higher education and a changing perception of this in American society. In the studio with me is Pate McMichael. He's a professor of mass communications at Georgia College. This conversation is a part of our ongoing collaboration with the American Democracy Project to bring their time stock conversation to our radio audience. We'll be right back with more. Georgia College Connections.
Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. We're returning to our collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Timestock conversations to our radio audience. Today, we're talking about freedom of expression in higher education and American society. I'm joined in the studio by Pate McMichael of the Georgia College Mass Communications Department. We've been looking at this conversation about freedom of expression in the ways that it's being codified or not, being left ambiguous at our universities and colleges across the country, uh, probably, you know, uh, across the globe, really, in higher education. And I wanted to try to broaden this out and take it off of the college campus necessarily and say, what is at stake for society when we're talking about this topic? It's an interesting conversation. Obviously, there are metaphors for college that are not all that pleasant, like ivory tower or, as we were saying earlier, a bubble. And so universities are places where there tend to be a lot of tolerance. There tends to be a lot of high-level conversations, right? People tend to be treated pretty fairly, and yet the world's not always that way. So one of the worries I think that a lot of faculty members have is if we start restricting speech on campus— instituting trigger warnings, how well are we really preparing these students for the big, bad world that they will suddenly step into? And as we know, this generation, a lot of them do seem to mature a little bit later than maybe previous generations. We're a wealthier society than we've probably been, you know, than we were certainly 50 years ago. A lot of these young people have not had as many brushes with real life as maybe other adults have. So it's a worry that if we begin to insulate them from hateful speech, we might not be doing them a very good service for the real world and dealing with the challenges we know exist in the real world, like racism, like inequality, and in some cases, a lack of opportunity that they may find in their profession that they've studied and worked so hard to try to master and then find that there's limited opportunity in it. So it it does strike me as very consistent. If we have a more uh, traditional First Amendment type of policy where all speech is tolerated, we generally are more likely to produce students who are better prepared for some of the realities they'll face and hopefully inspire these students to then change the world for the better by using their rights to – produce the kind of change that they want to see in their local communities. Civic engagement is not exactly at an all-time high. If we want these young people to take on leadership roles in society, to run for public office, to serve in the state legislature, shouldn't we really be encouraging them at the college level to express themselves in very, very, um, you know, passionate ways and to also be forced to hear things they don't want to hear, things that do upset them, things that do offend them, so that they're aware of the different opinions out there in society. I can see a consistency with that line of thinking. I'm not sure how well prepared a student would be if we continue to make the bubble more insulated and bigger because the coddling aspect of the university I think, has gone to a level that I didn't expect it to go. And I wonder if some of that coddling has gone so far that we've created students who might be fearful about stepping out into the community 
and doing things like walking down to the police station to pull a public record or dare to ask the clerk of the court to see a case file. A lot of our students are very resistant to those kind of assignments, primarily, I think, because they're very unaware what their rights are as a citizen. They haven't heard a lot of that conversation. They maybe have been insulated from knowing that they are free to do maybe and say things that they have been discouraged from saying or thinking. There's so many thoughts that I have uh, about this last part of our conversation. I'm trying to uh, met them out of my mind. And you know, one of the things that a potential question I had, which is, is almost flippant in a way, but you know, I want to bring this into the idea that you know, this, in a sense, scratches at a tougher question of, of what education is supposed to do. Is it is supposed to emancipate these young minds or is it a means of conditioning them? From your last answer, especially about going out and exercising some of your rights as a citizen, it almost seems like it's conditioning you uh, to be more complacent uh, with the way things are and you know, placating you know, a, a perception of what you were brought up on. And I, I can't help but feel scared about that because beyond what's going on in our universities, and we've talked about this before, I think our society is becoming more segregated. It's like we broke the bond of legal segregation and are just accepting it into our lives as, you know, either the way things are or the way things are or the way we choose to have society be. And, you know, I think that this is probably going to an extreme, but if we are looking at, you know, keeping people from uncomfortable conversations, maybe that conversation isn't in going down to the police office and looking up a police report, but it's, you know, reaching across the fence to a neighbor who's different from you and, you know, having a hard conversation, maybe not about problems that you have as individuals, but problems that we have as a society. And we're not going to be able to address those things if we don't have the taught tools of experience in addressing hard issues. I think you're right. One thing I notice is that you know, my vision of what a university should be and what it should produce in a student is very different usually than the parents' interpretation. Parents are very much, almost to a fault, dedicated to making sure their students get a job, right? And so we view colleges in many ways as just a place to get employment, a, a step along the way, almost like a licensing agency. Whereas the more traditional view would be it is a place to emancipate your mind. It's a place for you to break bonds of ignorance. It's a place for you to become a lifelong learner and to fall in love with the process of learning and to be insatiable in your consumption of knowledge and truth. So those are two very different ideals, right? I can prepare you to work a job uh, and make you see that there's a financial reward there. But we're so obsessed in many ways with that financial reward that comes from studying that we are almost ignoring, right, the higher purpose of education, which is to make you sovereign in your own mind in the sense that you can find truth, you can identify it, and you can also recognize uncertainty use the skills that we give you to make the world a better place through things like research, through knowledge, through reading, through service to your community. 
what should universities be here to do? Hopefully they create people that, you know, bring solutions to big problems. And the problem you just mentioned, which is just the absolute inequality that we see in our world, the ideological split that we see in our world, you know, how do we mend that without creating people who are more open-minded and less bigoted towards other people? I don't see a way to do that. I don't see a way for us to become a better country, a more united country, without educating people and convincing them that they should fall in love with learning, even though it's not as fun as entertainment, even though it may not make you uh, the wealthiest person on your street. Well, and it's interesting in how our conversation has almost come full circle in that some of the issues that, or shall we say challenges that we're talking about here, in a sense, have an economic root to them in the way that education is changing to, um, I've said in other conversations, you know, this kind of more customer service or customer satisfaction uh, mold. And does that actually break down, you know, the true purpose of education? You know, I think there's no doubt that, you know, uh, at, in higher education, the, the pressure on the administration, the pressure on the faculty, e- even to the staff and the students themselves is to use this as a licensing process to have the credentials to go out, get that job. And that credentialism is something that is a scary aspect of where we're going in the society. And, you know, when we've taken education and said that everyone must get a college education to, you know, compete in this new economy that we're building for ourselves, it is moving away from that pure ideal of a higher education and the journey that it would take you on. No doubt. I think you're right that there has been policies put in place that make universities much more like corporations than autonomous institutions that are fearless and that just worship knowledge and worship research and worship discovery. Because we have policies in place where we expect students to graduate in a certain amount of years, right? And that sometimes doesn't allow a student to change their mind, to follow an interest that they have, to stay and get another minor, right, learn a foreign language. Students feel like their back's up against the wall to get out and start earning money, that they're not always aware that this is the one time in their life they're going to have to really liberate themselves and grow, make themselves into people who can enjoy much more about life than maybe their parents can. And so study abroad furthers that effort. Foreign language, which is one of the most unpopular subjects in higher education, and and that's the most short-sighted thing I can imagine, that we would not allow a student time to develop skills, language skills, to communicate in another culture. You know, it's as if we're just burying our heads in the sand and pretending the world is flat because the global economy is what it is. And we need people who are prepared to participate in it, to lead it. We can't do that if licensing and money is the real only end for education. These have to be people that are free to really go into the dark parts of research and to try to hew out some kind of real discovery, right? Uh, like we see in astronomy, you know, like we see in tech, country does have a lot to celebrate when it comes to 
you know, what we're doing in the world and what we're discovering. But there seems to be a very, very big gap between those who are prepared to work those jobs and the students who are traditionally going through non-science, non-math type of majors. I wonder what role the university itself is playing in making sure that we have people prepared to solve the biggest challenges in the world and also the challenges that will be the most lucrative to solve. Like, how do we get back to a world that's less unequal in terms of wealth? How do we take these small towns that are everywhere and create opportunity there that's left and gone to another country. We're only the people who are going to be able to make those decisions. No one's going to come here and do that for us. In opening students' minds and, and getting them to explore radical concepts may be the only solution. Well, I think it's just one of the paradoxes of our age in which we have changed the economy from a manufacturing-based economy to this concept of the creative economy. But in a sense, our education system has moved away from one that celebrates creativity in the pursuit of the unknown uh, to one that really focuses on the rote reproduction of known entities. That's, you know, maybe our, our downfall. I think that it's, you know, it's a failure of the imagination to consolidate or bring together these two ideas of what we say that we want, the creative economy, those people who are going to go out and innovate and invent, but yet a just reliance or a focus on things that don't exercise those muscles within the young students. I mean, the idea of discovery and how difficult it is to be someone who can unearth new facts, right, if you're a journalist, or create a new product right, if you're in the sciences or discover a new vaccine. I mean, those things require funding, they require safety nets, and they require clear paths. So if we expect every student to just get in and get out, where are we going to get these people who, you know, sometimes have to spend years being given a salary, given health insurance, given benefits, and staying in an academic environment where they can do research and they can really try to answer the more difficult questions that we face. If our state continues to cut all our funding, right, we're down into the teens as far as what we get from the state of Georgia. If, if that continues to happen, then where will those discoveries come from? We're told they'll come from the private sector, but most companies in the private sector have a three-month quarter and a profit margin that they have to maintain, asking them to shoulder the burden of all that discovery and research and development seems a little foolhardy because how's that going to operate? How's that going to work when investors are demanding higher profits, higher stock prices? So I think all this does work together. It gets very complicated because our economy is very complicated, but the most open minds, the most intellectually curious people seem to do very well in this economy. The people who have only been trained to do a certain skill sometimes seem to see the rug slip out from under them, and they're left with nothing because they've only been trained to do one particular task, and, and that requires them to obviously go back and get more education, which is expensive and harder to do as you're older. And so this has been a, a great conversation in which I think 
as we're at the the end of the conversation or the end of our time at least we have more questions than we do you know real answers to what we came to look at but this is a times talk conversation and uh, we end them with the same question and although i don't think you expect a lot of answers from your conversation at the times talk but what do you hope that people will take away from this conversation what i hope is that they'll come and hear other people's points of view and really challenge their own point of view by listening. And, and that's what I hope to do. I hope to learn something that I really don't know and maybe rethink where I currently stand on this. I think an intellectual society is one where you constantly have to challenge your degree of certainty and then readjust when you are proven wrong. And so if there's a better way for us to do speech on campus other than keep it very wide open and traditional First Amendment speech, I'm all open to hearing why we need more of those trigger warnings, why we need more of that safe space, uh, and how that's going to make the university better and produce more competent people who are going to make our society better. So if everybody comes and listens and participates, it's going to be a blast. But if people are too scared to express their opinion, if they're worried they might offend someone else, then it's probably going to be a lot of preaching to the choir, which is never a good thing at a university. There should always be debate. Well, Pate, thank you so much for bringing this debate uh, to our radio audience here on Georgia College Connections. Thank you. You've been listening to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we continued our collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversation to our radio audience. If you enjoyed our conversation today, please engage in it each Wednesday at noon in the Georgia College Library. Today, our topic of conversation was freedom of expression in higher education in an American society. My guest was Pate McMichael, and he is a professor of mass communication at Georgia College. I've been your host, Daniel McDonald, and I've really enjoyed getting to spend this portion of the evening with you here on Georgia College Connections. And I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you next time.